Hi, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to another episode on the 2020 Network presented by Interact, where I speak with experts to go deeper into the scientific, policy, public health, and economic forces at play with COVID-19. Today, I'm speaking with Brett House, Deputy Chief Economist at Scotiabank, who's been monitoring the economic impacts of COVID-19 on the Canadian economy. Brett, thank you for making the time to speak with me today. It's great to get together virtually. <laughs> well, let's start with the big question that's on so many people's minds right now. Uh, are we headed towards a global recession? Uh, we think we are, uh, because the kind of shutdowns in major economies and emerging economies that we're now seeing are more or less unprecedented. A lot of people are making comparisons to 2008, and in some ways I understand those comparisons because it's the last major economic disruption that we suffered that had global scale to it. But I think the better analogy in some ways is September 11th. Uh, 2001, when we had a similar kind of sudden stop uh, to the one that we're experiencing right now, uh, where substantial portions of the economy were just simply shut down for a period of time. And at that time, it was indefinite. Um, it ended up being what will likely be a shorter time than we're uh, encountering now. Uh, but with such big parts of our economic systems being shuttered, uh, we believe that we are going to see uh, declines in economic activity uh, going into the second quarter of this year that are unprecedented. We are likely in Q2 to see uh, contractions in the world's major economies that are the largest we've ever recorded. Yeah, it's just absolutely shocking. And so so you are the uh, Deputy Chief Economist at Scotiabank. Uh, is this the commonly held view um, across the major banks in Canada as well? Well, what you're seeing right now is some elements of the major banks' economic forecasting groups are wildly divergent at any given time because developments are proceeding so quickly and having such a big impact on our models and the numbers that they produce that you know, if one bank publishes on a Monday and the other bank publishes updated forecasts on a Friday, uh, they can look radically different from one another. I don't think I've had a time in my professional life when a deck of projections and prognostications has gone stale quite as quickly as it has uh, on several occasions over the last few weeks. So, what I would say is that normally our numbers are very closely aligned with one another, not because we're in some kind of compact, but you know we look at similar economic data, we use publicly available numbers, and we run very similar models because we've been trained in similar ways. And there are questions of degree of difference. Sometimes we put a little emphasis on different parts of those modeling processes, our numbers are generally uh, within the ballpark of one another, but you've seen moments over the last few weeks where not just the Canadian bank research groups, but if you look globally at you know the world's large banks and their economics teams, they have produced for the U.S. economy, the Canadian economy, other large economies at different times, very widely dispersed forecasts. And that, I would say, is partially a factor of different timing day-to-day uh, -day in their publication schedule, uh, but also different calibrations or different guesses on how long they think it will take 
for us to hit that point where the curve starts to flatten on the rate of new instances of COVID-19. And, you know, we generally think we're going to have to see that flattening in the curve before we start to get any kind of rollback in some of the shutdowns and controls that have been put into place and any greater confidence in financial markets. Once we do hit that point, I think there's a general consensus that the rebound in most economies will be, um, you know, rather robust because, you know, our economic systems aren't broken. They're shuttered right now. And the real challenge for policymakers is ensuring that they don't um, flip from just being mothballed to being uh, made insolvent and broken. And that's why, you know, both the monetary policy actions by central banks and the fiscal actions by uh, departments of finance or finance ministries are so important here because those are the things that are critical to ensuring otherwise solvent and viable businesses and households are able to weather their way through this and get to the other side and be able to pick up their activity again. So in terms of that diversity of outlook, do you think, um, at least in part, it's being driven by how long the assumption is on social isolation? Like how long does the economy need to be shuttered for public health reasons? You know, I think it's uh, it's multifold. Uh, on the front end, uh, it's uh, a reflection of some differences in our assumptions about the speed by which public authorities are acting and the rate at which uh, populations are likely to comply. Um, and then, you know, on the, on the back end, it's uh, a set of differences in assumptions about how quickly uh, financial support is being rolled out and interest rate cuts and other easing in monetary policy are being uh, transmitted uh, to the real economy uh, in order to sustain businesses and households. And then thirdly, there are some differences in assumptions in how long those will need to remain in place in order to not just flatten the curve, but bring new incidences down very substantially back uh, close to zero again. Uh, because no public health authority is going to want to prematurely pull off uh, these restrictions and undo all the good work we may do over the next few weeks to flatten the curve and then see it bounce back up again. So, you know, there are three sets of assumptions there we're playing with, and they can lead to very different results in otherwise very similar modeling exercises. So I also wanted to ask you, because this has been a, a perpetual curiosity for me, we for sure have this pandemic going on. Uh, many of, the, of uh, our economies are shuttered. But what role is oil playing in the negative forecasts? Uh, well, that's a great question, because if you're sitting in Canada, we're unfortunately hitting a double whammy of not just the COVID-19 pandemic, but we are also collateral in a price war where uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia, uh, as a result of a breakdown in uh, OPEC plus talks, have uh, started pumping oil hand over fist in, in order to try to show each other who's boss and also force out of the market uh, more marginal producers, including 
the big producers that have come out of the fracking and uh, shale revolution in the United States, their agenda over the medium term is to try to you know, really reduce the extent to which the U.S. is a marginal supplier in markets. And they're doing that by pumping up uh, output, pushing prices down, and uh, their hope is that they will put you know, at least some marginal producers out of business in the process. That means you know, Canada is uh, getting hit not just by COVID-19, but by very low oil prices after five years of what have been pretty middling oil prices. And those have a distinct impact, not just on the oil producing provinces of Saskatchewan, Alberta, and Newfoundland, but really on the entire economy. The Canadian dollar trades to some extent uh, off oil prices. It also reflects the interest rate differential between Canada and the United States. Uh, but manufacturing services, the host of economic activities in other parts of the country do rely on our natural gas, oil, and mining industry. You know, in central Canada, we produce a lot of pipes, pumps, fittings, you know, and other things that are essential to the oil and gas industry. And so really the well-being of Ontario, Quebec, and other provinces is as bound up in some ways with oil prices as the provinces we traditionally think of, Alberta, Newfoundland, and Labrador. I think we're all starting to better understand just how interconnected we all are, you know, both from an economic point uh, point of view and just in terms of socializing, whether it's virus shedding or just missing, you know, being within six feet of someone. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, any time uh, that we talk about trade and uh, social interactions together, uh, it's both the micro and the macro of the way we relate and are interconnected to each other. And I was, uh, you know, reading what political scientists had to say um, about this, uh, this war between Putin and Mohammed bin Salman. And they're also predicting that this could go on for months. Are, are we seeing a perfect storm here? Uh, well, we are seeing a bit of a perfect storm for Canada because uh, not only are we a trading nation where we rely on exporting for a substantial share of our economic well-being, uh, we are a natural resource producer. And with COVID-19 and this oil price war, we've got two things happening at the same time that not only dampen uh, demand for exports as a whole, but also have pushed down prices on some of our most important exports. So for Canada, this really is a bit of a perfect storm. And then I was shocked to read uh, out, uh, out of Abacus Research, David Coletto was saying that 44% of Canadians believe uh, the outbreak will have a minimal financial impact. Where do you think the disconnect is happening there? Uh, well, it could be coming from a few different uh, perspectives. On the one hand, it may be a misapprehension of how serious the outbreak is. And I think all of us have been caught a little off by it. I mean, no matter how many zombie or contagion movies one has watched, uh, and one could see you know, the signs of this being a gathering storm, it is very hard cognitively for us to flip from early warning signs to future projecting to how you know, difficult uh, things could be. It, you know, it may also be 
uh, reflection of faith in policymakers. I know a lot of polling says that people are rather cynical about, uh, you know, governments, uh, politicians, and public servants. But I do think Canada is one of the last refuges of uh, faith in science, faith in experts, uh, faith in, you know, our leaders uh, doing their homework. And so there, there may be, you know, some faith in the communication and the planning that we're seeing from, you know, incredibly competent professionals like Dr. Tam, uh, you know, our, our federal cabinet, our uh, provincial premiers, you know, from across party lines, you're seeing some really strong uh, reassurance and uh, smart planning coming forward from our political leaders and our public servants. So, um, you know, it, it, it may be a good sign that, you know, when people are communicated with well, they see a clear plan. And, you know, sociological research says that so long as people feel, you know, that even impositions like a quarantine are being applied fairly, they're willing to go along with it uh, and have faith in it. Uh, you know, what, what we may see here is uh, a real reflection of a faith in, you know, Canada as a collective unit, Canada as a functioning uh, polity, and uh, Canada as, you know, a place that, you know, is still grounded in fact and grounded in open and rational discussion. Peace, order, and good government, right? Yeah. You know, sometimes it trumps, uh, well, that's an unfortunate <laughs> uh unfortunate verb to use here but you know it, it 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 is at least a viable alternative to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness because what we have right now is a collective action problem and we need collective systems in order to respond to it so you know you were talking about you know some of the stimulus that that has been uh, tabled so the economic uh response plan was tabled by minister morno uh you know What's your take on it? Is that is is that what what you were hoping to see uh, come out of the federal government, or were you hoping for more? Uh, well, I think you know, we should approach all these announcements as multiple steps in what will be a chain of developments. Uh, we are working in uh, very uh, very difficult circumstances and in very rapid paces, and what it means is that. You know, we're, we're not going to get things right uh, on the first go. It'll probably take a few phases or steps to get all of the pieces in place, make sure that they're designed and calibrated right, make sure the plumbing to actually implement them works properly. So I see the measures that have been brought forward uh, as very much in the spirit of uh, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good and act with the speed that is required of the current circumstances. We will almost certainly uh, see more uh, spending and tax measures coming from our governments uh, as the scale of the downturn and its impact on individual people's lives and on businesses becomes clearer. Um, and, you know, so I think you know, the initial things that we've seen, you know, which are designed to deliver credit relief to businesses to put cash in the hands of people, particularly people in industries or sectors uh, that are, you know, directly shut down, who can't work from home, um, and ensure that people who have been uh, outside formal employment are also uh, eligible for, for benefits are absolutely the right sort of things. 
But now what you're seeing is a second level of discussions and refinement on you know, the elig- eligibility criteria for some of those benefits and programs, ensuring that those are tweaked to, to make sure that you know, the people who are intended or the businesses that are intended to get these supports actually are able to access them. You know, I think what we'll see, too, is you know, the size of some of these benefits increased over time. The duration of them will probably have to be stretched out. Um, there are going to need to be creative ways to deal with, you know, mortgages and, you know, other, uh, other debt service payments that uh, don't necessarily need to be entirely rescheduled, but need to be deferred. And, you know, we've been hearing all the banks, you know, have taken action and made announcements that they're, you know, interested in having discussions with their clients, both business and, and households to, to work out ways to ensure that people are not, um, you know, not cornered by debt obligations that would, in normal circumstances, be sustainable for them. Yes, yeah, so earlier today, uh, Minister Patty Haidu uh, mentioned that uh, Minister Morneau uh, is developing an additional package of support, which I think in and of itself is a good message that people understand that this is an iterative process and you know, going back to, to, to what you said earlier, you know, um, each day seems to bring um, a year's worth of data points, information, and, you know, developments in this dynamic situation. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, there is a whole lot of the elements of the things that we're putting into place uh, that work in theory, but then making them work in practice is... Uh, a second level challenge. So, for instance, you know, we saw uh, a little over a week ago the Bank of Canada came out with uh, uh, an unplanned cut in its reference overnight target rate, which is its main policy interest rate. And you know, some wondered why hasn't it gone further? Why hasn't it dropped interest rates all the way down to uh, right at zero or just above zero? And in part. You know, we think they haven't moved the rest of the way uh, or as far as some other central banks have because that first cut hasn't worked its way through the financial system quite as anticipated. So, you know, there are bits and pieces of plumbing that are now getting worked out. The bank is putting other measures into place. You know, and I think once you see those kinks worked out, then you'll see another round of support if it's deemed necessary uh, come in, either from lower interest rates you know, more credit facilities being created, cheaper credit facilities, uh, or, you know, specific spending programs. So, you know, when you look at, you know, the support that's being delivered to people too, you know, we know that uh, the employment insurance system is absolutely mobbed right now. There's almost no way it's going to be able to process all the claims that are coming into it. So, you know, that augurs for looking at, you know, what are faster but not necessarily perfect ways of getting financing to people and you can you know get it out through early issuance of gst rebates through the canada child benefit making an extra payment there the important thing i think to keep in mind is we don't have to get it perfect either in terms of targeting or amount because we can increase the amount again that we send to people and uh if we haven't targeted it right if we've given it to people who don't actually in the end need it, it's very easy to tax benefits back next year 
when we see on people's tax returns that, hey, well, actually, they were fine. You know, they kept their job. They were able to work from home. You know, they didn't face a, a cash crunch. But better to get uh, the, the finances out to people and the support out to people and tax it back later rather than to wring your hands incessantly and miss the chance to help the people who need it most. Yeah, I think I think that is really encouraging because what are the odds of you know nailing it on the on the first time uh, out of the gate? And you know how many times have we ever experienced this kind of economic turmoil across every single sector corner uh, nugget uh, of the economy before? No, that's actually absolutely right. And you know we we often say to government, act more like business. And one of the mantras of startups and uh, the technology sector is to fail fast, fail hard, and fail often so that, you know, you keep trying things until you find what works best. And, you know, if we're, we're serious about that, then, you know, doing this in iterative steps, you know, fine-tuning, making some mistakes, but, you know, mistakes that we can correct uh, and learn from is exactly the right way to go. Uh, it's funny you should mention startups because that is one group that I think uh, has felt that uh, they weren't particularly helped by this first round of announcements. Yeah, I think that's fair because the $10 billion in business credit or financing that is being provided through the BDC and EDC uh, is being provided on the standard terms of both organizations. And my understanding is that for the financing through BDC, which bills itself as, you know, Canada's Bank for Entrepreneurs, you know, there's still a number of conditions there that could be tough for, uh, you know, early stage startups to meet. Uh, you know, some aspects of the financing require two years of history, and proof of viability. And, you know, if you're an early stage startup, you don't have two years of history. And I'm not sure how anyone proves viability right now. Yeah, that would that would be a very tall task. <laughs> yeah, I think it would. So, you know, uh, the money is being put through those institutions because they're existing pipelines, they're existing channels. And so that makes a lot of sense. You know, you don't have to build new infrastructure from scratch. But on the other hand, there's some aspects of those pipelines that don't necessarily flow as easily as we need them to. So, you know, they as institutions uh, are going to need to learn and be flexible in the midst of this. And they have some great leadership. So, you know, that leadership that comes from both the private and public sector. So they've got the kind of perspective, I think, to, to be nimble here. And in conditions like this, you have the political environment that can allow government to tweak regulation and uh, other structures to ensure that the changes are made quickly, I hope. I think people are still, um, you know, just based on my reading, are still being really constructive. So, you know, the Canadian Council of Canadian Innovators is, you know, uh, calling for a very large package of stimulus for small and medium-sized businesses. But I think the important thing there, you know, whether whether you know, we agree that the council has nailed the the amount right, uh, or even the targeting right. It's the idea that that we're still writing letters, right? We're still we're still putting proposals on the table, and and I think good iteration to you know keep at this um, metaphor um, in terms of startups. 
that iteration uh, take is a conversation between the startup and the customer. It's not an internal conversation. So, you, you know, you need you need to hear that feedback from from the different economic participants. Yeah, you absolutely do. And uh, you need to have the communication channels open and available that uh, will allow uh, that kind of feedback to come back in real time. And I think that's where uh, Canada is lucky because we are uh, large enough to be a country in an economy of consequence, but small enough to still be intimate and informal with one another. And I think that is a beautiful sweet spot to be in, to to work in a very constructive manner with key people, you know, key industries, uh, key innovators and decision makers at the table, uh, to be nimble, to be fast, and to respond to what really are unprecedented challenges. Yeah, and in terms of that lack of precedent, um, you know, I think uh, you had mentioned unemployment rates. Um, you know, folks are saying, you know, when we th- when we try to think about what is the appropriate scale um, of economic relief or, or response, um, you know, some people are suggesting, you know, we should be working on an assumption of ten to twenty percent unemployment. Yeah, I believe that's entirely possible. I mean, we are looking at the possibility of you know, uh, a contraction in the second quarter on the order of somewhere around 15% of the total value of our economy, and it could be more. Um, And in those circumstances, you know, the levels of unemployment that we're likely to reach are are going to be things, are are going to be numbers that, uh, you know, none of us... uh, none of us has seen in our lifetimes. Um, and, you know, they could well exceed uh, for a brief period the kind of numbers that uh, Canada and the United States saw in the 1930s. Uh, the difference is uh, we know how to react uh, more, uh, more thoughtfully uh, to limit the period by which uh, those kind of numbers should be in, in force. You know, if we if we get that financing to people, if we keep businesses solvent and ready uh, for when some of these controls come back and come off, uh, we are going to be able to get people back to work relatively quickly. You know, putting my history hat on for a moment, I think one of the um, one of the difficult things to to uh, comprehend not only is it you know sort of the the scale of disruption, it's the speed of disruption, like this has all happened so quickly. Think about how you felt about the world a month ago. Think about how you were maybe planning your calendar for the, the remainder of the year a month ago. Uh, you know, if you're in real estate or a family either looking to buy or sell a home, you know, you were starting to think about the spring buying season as it's known. People were looking at making huge financial decisions, uh, all of those are likely in suspension right now. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a huge, huge shift, and it's hard to imagine that this will not fundamentally change us in ways that, you know, as an economist, I don't think I'm really well-placed to anticipate, but we are going to be different coming out of this. And from an economics perspective, I would think, it's going to shape how people think about savings, how people uh, think about structuring employment, 
how people think about their economic relationships with others, uh, how we think about contracting around things like debt and employment and benefits. Um, you know, this is a case, for instance, where you know the United States' historic decision to tie healthcare to people's jobs looks, you know, not very resilient or not very robust when you have a situation where a pandemic is putting people out of work and you want to encourage people to take responsible decisions to be tested, to deal with symptoms early, uh, and to self-quarantine in order to control spread. Uh, you know, these are things that really point to the need to have a public component and have, you know, shared mutuality of risk uh, when we're thinking about decisions around uh, basic benefits like health, education, and welfare. Thinking a little bit about how, you know, other countries are responding and, you know, just parking at the, the American example, um, because that's a whole other show. <laughs> but yeah. um, but uh, thinking about the 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 Danish approach and and some other countries are adopting it too, where their economic response plans are, uh, you know, designed with the purpose to try and put their economy in the freezer is the metaphor that just trying to freeze everything to um, a point when the pandemic hits, so that when you get out the other side, uh, the economy still you know resembles what it did pre-pandemic. What are, what, what are your thoughts on, on, on that take? And, and do you think that's maybe a direction we'll try to go in through subsequent iterations um, of uh, the Government of Canada's ERP? The metaphor here is uh, important, I think. You know, when we talk about putting the economy into a deep freeze, I don't think what Denmark is saying is, you know, we shut everything down. What they're trying to say is more like a, a cryogenics experiment, you know, like preservation. It's preservation. It's uh, ensuring, uh, you know, a precautionary principle or a Hippocratic oath uh, on an economic or macroeconomic scale that no damage is done, that capacities are retained, uh, that supply chains and economic links are are kept robust rather than being broken. Um, I think that's exactly you know, what we're trying to do by flooding uh, our, our capital markets with liquidity, with cheap money, and uh, by ensuring that people get cash directly delivered to them by government. Um, those are two big contrasts, you know, uh, to how policymakers might have dealt uh, with something like this, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. You know, we've learned lessons from the crises we've been through. I think it's also important to point out that, you know, when we, we talk about Denmark doing something like this, it's always, I think, kind of a natural inclination when we hear something coming from Denmark or the Netherlands or Sweden. I mean, these are incredibly thoughtful, uh, well-designed uh, societies. They're a little utopic, and, you know, we sort of assume that, oh, well, you know, they're, they're a small, exceptional group that can do things like this. When, in fact, if you scan across the world right now, uh, you know, very, uh, very wealthy countries are doing, uh, you know, are, are putting into place big policy packages, big spending packages to support 
households and businesses, but emerging markets you know, across Latin America, across Asia are doing this as well. African countries are moving to figure out, you know, scaled with different dollar numbers, uh, you know, in some cases, but are working out how they as a collectivity can ensure that, you know, no one falls through the cracks and the structure of their economic system is preserved. Uh, but I think, you know, there, there are going to be behavioral differences that come out of this, even if those big structural lines uh, remain in place. We should be as bold as we want to be for the reason you just said, you know, uh, through, throughout this conversation, you know, we, we don't have a healthcare system tied to employment, so that's great. And we are a wealthy nation. Um, but at any point, should we be worried about our deficit or, 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 or when should we start really looking closely at that number? You know, I think the, the most dangerous things to think right now is inaction rather than action. I mean, we came into this with some of the best uh, general government finances in the world. We had uh, one of the lowest, uh, if not the lowest, uh, general government debt to GDP ratio amongst uh, large industrialized countries in the world. Uh, the Parliamentary Budget Office estimated uh, long before interest rates started falling um, as the pandemic took hold that Canada had the potential to run a deficit at the federal level two percentage points of GDP larger uh, than it was set to do on the, on the platform on which this government ran. And, uh, you know, the... The package that was brought out by Minister Morneau, uh, the spending side of it's worth about uh, 1.1, 1.5% of GDP. So we haven't used up all the room that the PBO said we had already. In fact, with lower interest rates now, we've got much bigger uh, space than we did before because those lower interest rates mean we can sustain more debt at lower costs than was otherwise the case. Um, and, you know, the real danger right now is we don't provide enough support. And rather than preserving and cryogenically uh, uh, maintaining the economic structures that we've got, we allow them to fall apart. And then it's much more expensive to put them back together again. So there's a way in which you know, spending and running a deficit right now are the responsible uh uh, prudent things to do to save money in the long run rather than, you know, increase costs. Before I let you go, Brett, one last question. I just wanted to ask you, can you take us inside the Bank of Nova Scotia a, a little bit? Like what, what what's it like working now um, in this new uh, physical disting environment? Well, the the bank, I think, like all large Canadian organizations and institutions, is taking incredible incredibly seriously uh, its responsibility and role uh, as a key partner in keeping uh, the economy moving, keeping uh, households and businesses solvent. And I know, you know, it's working uh, with uh, its clients in a multiplicity of ways to do that. Uh, for me, I've been working from home uh, for two weeks now. And, uh, you know, one of the great things about my job is I get to have very interesting conversations with interesting people. Those are a lot harder to have right now. Uh, but in a time of so much flux, uh, you know, the kind of analysis we do is really 
I hope, helpful in uh, the decision-making people are having to engage in right now as they try to steer their way through all these developments. So it's a real, it's a real privilege and a pleasure to help, uh, to help people right now. And, you know, the bank, like most organizations has gone into working from home across a lot of its network branches, you know, remain the key place in which most Canadians interact with the bank and, you know, they remain open uh, on shorter hours and more constrained staff. Uh, but, you know, the most important thing is to be in touch. I, I think every organization wants to help, and the sooner you're in touch with them, the more they can do. Brad House, thank you so much for joining me. You are the Deputy Chief Economist at Scotiabank, and uh, you were very helpful today in helping us uh, understand uh, the fiscal challenge that, that lies ahead of us. Please be well. Thanks a lot. It was great to speak.